The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! I participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. 911, what's your emergency? I can't find Captain Nash and his wife's cruise ship. Tonight, 911 comes to ABC. If we're gonna make it out of here, we gotta work together. Tonight at 9 on ABC, followed by 7 News at 11. She was hired to fix DC's 911 problems. It was the worst I'd ever seen. But instead says she was fired for exposing the failures. The blame belongs in leadership. Now the I-team digs into what fueled the mayor's decision. Tonight on 7 News at 5. is this dream I see? Yeah! Why does it seem so real what? to what? me? Put your Quick hands up! little dream before shut, you're shut, gone. Shut, 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 Let's get it on. <laughs> Stop talking while I'm singing! We're helping! family! Me and Jackie and Natalie! Wow, that was good! Songwriter? I might be a singer-songwriter. <laughs> I may have written a couple songs lately, but uh, we're not here to talk about that episode. It's going to be probably about five years from now sure, after sure, I get sure. my, a couple of Grammys under my belt. Oh, we're going to do gotta. a pop history. Are you going to do one on yourself? Uh, as soon as I get the EGOT, we're going to do a pop history on myself. So what, what, like two and a half years from now? I'm going to say five years to be safe and Good to be you. nice and fair to all my like haters. But Ugh, they're yeah. out there. You know what I mean? <laughs> they are out there. Or whatever. Essentially, as soon as I make Ariana Grande, I'd be like, Oh, why? What is my career? When Who he's am I? Doing so well, yes. yeah. How can I even exist when he's doing? So but surprisingly, much we're not here to talk about any of those things. <laughs> we're here to talk about the bird cage. We are here to talk about the bird cage. No, no? Oh, not sorry. real birds. Not a real bird. The fact bird. That is the fact bird. Yeah, we wanted to do pride themed episodes for Pride Month, and uh, you know, it's funny though because we we did Rent. I don't even think purposely for Pride Month. No. Uh, but I had already talked about how oh, Rent was one of my first experiences with like looking at queer culture and uh, and then I watched Birdcage. I was like, oh no no, this was my first experience <laughs> seeing a lot of queer culture stuff. I mean, to the point where I think the first time I saw the movie, I was I almost didn't know what to think of it, right? And now it has since become the same kind of movie for me that Paul Thomas Anderson said it was for him. He said that uh, The Shining and The Birdcage are the two films that no matter what's happening, if it's on the TV, he stops everything and he and watches, watches the whole thing. watches it to the end. Yeah, this was the kind of movie that I could watch over and over and over again and just never, and just, I, we watched it again last night and I was like, I didn't even need to watch this in preparation. No. I no. think this is one of those movies is like on my list of movies I've seen more than most. I, I think still watch it twice least. a year. I still, We'll okay, just yeah, throw yeah. it on. I, I, it is, it is one of my family's favorite movies. I know that we did Steel Magnolias. Birdcage is the other movie that is up there with Steel Magnolias that my family quotes constantly. Yes, will always constantly watch. And in, it's interesting that you say that. And I think that I was so young that I was when I first started watching The Birdcage because I remember going to see it in the movie theater with my mom, and I think I was eight, and I didn't even know why. Like I thought it was like, oh. I didn't even understand that they were a gay couple. Oh, I was like, yeah. oh, they just don't like them. Oh. Which is kind <laughs> oh, of really? 
I think a That's beautiful funny. way sure. to look at yeah, it. Really, yeah. it, like as someone like we grew up, you know, in a so very even younger than me theater esque kind of family. So I think that right. it was just the kind of thing of like, oh, they're different. They're really conservative, and they have a lot of fun. Yeah, I think too. As a kid, I didn't realize that the the gravity of the storyline. Yes, because in dance too, you're not. It's not like you're. You're you're exposed to gay people in dance, but at the time in the '90s, that wasn't normal. Um, for like, for example, at my school, um, yeah. that would have been considered very strange. Yeah, well, but which sucks. It's yes. terrible. Oh yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But it, for me, it didn't. I didn't realize the weight of that couple being gay and what that meant. And it was interesting. I was reading this review that was talking about how like the Birdcage was at first. It was groundbreaking because it was the first big movie that featured a homosexual couple that was not about AIDS. Yeah. yeah. And I never thought about that before yeah, because Philadelphia, Philadelphia came out in 93, three years movie. before. And it just, it, by that point, I mean, this really was the palate cleanser from the AIDS epidemic in terms of uh, gays in the media because it was just all about, yeah, how they were suffering and dying and you know, disease. It was just tragic. And, and, it's, and, and, it's, yeah. and that shit happened. And so it was important. Which was a people, large part of the queer culture for quite yeah, some time. Important that people yeah. wrote stories about it. But at the same time, it's also um, a vibrant, beautiful, colorful. I love that final shot at the end of the movie with the two different, uh, the two sides of the aisle at the wedding. And you just have this bland, boring people in suits. And that's totally what my family would look like <laughs> at, during that time, whatever. And then they're looking across the aisle at this vibrant, colorful, beautiful thing. And you're just like, which group do you want to be a part of? Yeah. You know, and I think that that was a, a, one of the big game changers for me in looking at it because I agree, Natalie, like I was thinking about how afraid I was of queerness uh, societally in my community in the South at that time. Yeah. You know, I mean, just especially as a, for guys, as, for a guy to be associated with that was so, and it's just so interesting because you think back and you're like, how do these rules form? They just do, right? Because of the way the community is, right? Because I just don't look at Pride Month or and queerness or in all of, any of these things in that way, like at all. Anymore. Well, it's conservative culture that's sadly watching it. It was like, oh, this is not really very different now. <laughs> like, yeah, I, yeah, this yeah, guy looks that. so much like Mike Huckabee. And they are like they're spewing the same trash. Yeah, yeah. Right the, now, Rush Limbaugh is a reference in yes. the fucking movie. Oh, yes, it's like yeah. amazing. I mean, I totally agree with you. But to have those things, those characters, br brush up against each other, and to have them interact, and to have these, and and make a comedy out of it too. I, I think I have a quote in here about how important it was for it to be a comedy too. At the end of the day, because we just it teaches so I think so much better sometimes about you know cultures and things and i will say i mean n my parents are quite liberal and very like uh you know lgbtq friendly and all that stuff growing up you know for sure but even still i just feel like i don't know hanging out as a family and like watching that movie to i think we did watch it together uh at, like at home and that was so important. That was like such an important moment that I now think back. I'm like, oh my God, this movie was important and not just like a fucking hilarious, awesome film right. with some of the best comic actors, Nathan Lane, Robin Williams. Everybody's just killing it in this movie. Gene Hackman is killing it in this For movie. For sure. So but I, I, Jackie, I think you're, you're right in that it was really to, uh, in a way, I think it was important as kids for us to not see this as like this gravity movie because yeah. it was just showing a couple and and 
that's a normal couple. Normalizing a and, happy gay couple. Right. Yes. And, yeah. and just seeing that as a normal couple, I think was important to us as younger people. And how Nathan Lane toes the line of like being a gay caricature and not and being so human and so raw and so and so well, that's what they were really striving for was to man. not just be a character of queer culture where also Nathan Lane talks about this at this time he was out to his family but he wasn't publicly out so it was very oh, difficult really? for him that he was like well I guess this is me. And there were interviews afterwards that, huh. that there was an Oprah interview where he was asked about his sexuality and he just kind of dodged the question. Oh, when wow. obviously like this was a very important to him of how this character was to be portrayed. And uh, it's I, in my head, I'm like, that wasn't even that long ago. Right. But then we remember it was, it just came up on the 25th anniversary of this movie, which also means we are Oh, <laughs> yes. We are very old. So I feel old. like this movie just came out and it did it. <laughs> I do remember watching it the first time. For yes. sure. yeah. um, by the way, we came to the realization last night that Henry's impression of your mother is a combination of your mother and the character Nathan Lane plays in this movie. <laughs> uh, because yes. if you notice, your mother has a higher pitched voice than he does her as, and it is because he's doing the tone of Nathan Lane. Yeah, from this movie. oh my That's God. So I yes. also, since we already brought up Nathan Lane and, and uh, all that good stuff, I, I want to go ahead and just say, it was originally supposed to be Stephen Martin in Robin Williams' part, Robin Williams in the Nathan Lane part, yes. Steve Martin dropped out, Robin Williams then said, hey, I just did Mrs. Doubtfire. I think I want to play the other part. And then they got Nathan Lane, who's actually gay, to play yeah, that they, part. I'm and glad. if they did, I think we'd be having a very different conversation yeah. in this room right now about this film, yeah. uh, uh, you know, 20 years from now. And so I, it was so important that that switch happened. Yeah, yes, definitely. <laughs> for this film to, I guess, this is always the question, right? Do these movies hold up? This movie, I think, does hold up. It, it definitely has some issues. Funnier. We'll get into it. it sure, we will. But, but uh, it, it is I think even it holds funnier up. than yeah. it used to be. It is crazy it's to me. So funny. I have seen this movie, I think, 50 times, and I laugh to till my stomach hurts yeah. still. We like that laugh. again, that Gene Hackman monologue, which I never understood as a kid, now <laughs> is I think one of the funniest parts. It's dazzling. I-75. Like, like, talking about the leaves and how it's cold in the north and so warmer funny. in the south. And he's just going and going. <laughs> and also now realizing too. Man, Diane Weiss is a ride or she's fucking die. So she's such a badass. <laughs> this was like right after she did Edward Scissorhands too. She yeah, was crushing she's it. She's so good, man. I mean, this cast is unreal good. But man. first we before we talk about the movie, we need to talk about the source material where this Please. comes from. Yeah, yeah. Because and, and uh I think I, I always love ten minutes in to give the synopsis of the show. So let me go ahead and do that. Now <laughs> Hell that we've yeah. uh, gone way too far to uh discuss it. The Birdcage is a nineteen ninety six American comedy film directed by Mike Nichols, adapted by Elaine May, and starring Robert. Robin Williams, Gene Hackman, Nathan Lane, Diane Weist, Dan Futterman, Callista Flockhart, Hank Azaria, and Christine Baranski. It is a remake of the 1978 Franco-Italian film La Caja Folle, which is based on a play and musical of the same name, just to lay the groundwork. But yes, we'll start definitely with the play La Caja Folle, a 1973 French farce written by Jean Pioret 
for wow. who this is his best known work. I'm actually a little better at the French names than I was just saying to Natalie and Jackie. Don't worry, I do uh, have to do Japanese names left and right and Wizard of the Bruiser every other episode, and those I butcher, but some of these I might get right. Jean-Pierre! I don't know. For no, whom I don't this is his best so. known work. However, he first rose to prominence back in 1951, acting in a popular radio series in France. He later got into writing parodies of popular pieces at the time. I'm sure they all hold up. I'm sure they're all hilarious. Oh, sure, sure, sure. But I do want to say that this is, for the time period, 1973, this is also a big deal. Big deal. Th this, and like, it's so interesting to watch the transition of this from play to movie to musical to movie again and how it has grown with time, which is why I am sad that later on we'll talk about why there's not going to be a sequel, but I think that it is something that can be adaptable over time and have the same yeah. weight of the, and be just as fun. Very sadly, nothing's changed in culture. Nope. Yeah, no, no, which is disgusting. Keep talking about it. Uh, for sure. And uh, yeah, also it's writer Jean Pierre, I should say, starred in it as Renato Baldi, the uh, Robin Williams Armand role. Yes. Uh, as well in the original play. The he started in the play and was going to star in it in the movie. Okay, but yeah. and But he ends up, yeah, he gets replaced, right? Oh, he does. Interesting. Mm. I think you've got the beef on that. Yeah, I got the beef. The title literally <laughs> means the cage of crazy women. However, full is also slang for effeminate homosexuals or queens as re we refer to them in the U.S. Uh, little plan words there. The plot is basically the same. Like the play upon which it is based, the film tells the story of a gay couple, Renato Baldi, the manager of a St. Uh, Tropez nightclub featuring drag entertainment, and Albin Mojolta, his star attraction, and the madness that ensues when Renato's son, Laurent, brings home his fiancée, Andrea, and her ultra-conservative parents to meet them. The original French production premiered at the Théâtre du Pérou-Royal oh, no. in February oh. of 1973. And it actually, it ran for almost 1,800 performances. That is a very strong run. So it must have been Crazy. very popular. Yes. Uh, during uh, the er, in the early 70s, which is how we get to this film. Um, give me the beef, Jackie. Where's the beef? <laughs> so Pierre. Um, was originally playing Renato, <laughs> um, who um, did work on the screenplay for the movie, but they were bringing in Italian producers on the project, so they wanted a little bit more of an Italian flair in the movie, oh. which is why they brought in Italian star Ugo Tonazzi to come in to play Renato in the movie. Now, these are people that were both Broadway people, so... The person that played Albin on Broadway also played Albin in the movie. And from the transition from the play into the original film, they wanted to ground the characters a lot more. They wanted to take, because on, on the stage, it was the big gay stereotypes. Yeah. And what I liked about this is that um, Molinero was that Molinero decided to bring humanity into the film. I think you mean Melinero. I'm sorry, Molinero. No, I think that the, he's Italian. So <laughs> oh, please. Yeah, yeah, see, there it is. There he is. There you go. And apparently it made the actor who was playing Albin originally very uncomfortable because he didn't, he was fine with playing an overt caricature of a homosexual man, but he himself was not homosexual and he was very uncomfortable playing a more sedate version 
version mm. of the character, which has got to be difficult to do that many performances on Broadway and then have to do the same character, same right. lines, but change it dramatically. Yeah. But that, and I have never actually. And on, I mean, on film, it's so different yes. yeah. than a stage play. Yes. Definitely. And that's what um, Molinero describes um, Seralt's difficulty in playing a real homosexual. He says it didn't bother him to play a screaming transvestite queen performing a number on stage. In the play, it was almost like a clown act. But we asked him for a greater reality and depth, and he wasn't very comfortable with that. However deep his discomfort, that element of humanity and tenderness makes the film more than a well-oiled farce filled with stereotypical characters. I've never seen it until yesterday. It's great. Yeah. And I, of course, you're like, oh, all right, yeah. I, you, what's sad is that it was like, it could never be the birdcage, though. Sure. Go ahead. <laughs> Act your play, will you? <laughs> Go ahead. Be the actual original version of the thing and not the Make me not my birdcage. <laughs> it is act it's very funny to watch. And it is almost a lot of it is word for word, except for, you know, the improvisations from the birdcage. But to see it done in a different but just as funny way. Yeah. Really. But it was down to like even the like the way it was set up was all the same. The, like the well, structurally, it's so sound. Yes, right. I mean, it's just from the from the very beginning uh, of uh, Nathan Lane's character being upset, be, thinking that he was having an affair, into it actually being the son, and it's all like it's just a total. Switcheroo. And you can I, you can definitely see the roots of it being a play. Yes, in the movie, yes. very much. Yes. But, but and usually you you feel that the whole way through, but you get lost in the birdcage. For oh, reason, for even sure. Though it's largely in one setting. Yeah, in that apart in that. Apartment, you can right? see, yeah, the way that uh, in the play you're you're watching the house change, and they have just the one room that they're <laughs> rearranging, right. yeah, from scene right. to yeah. scene, right. yeah. But, but no, but they they transform it in a really good, it, in a good way. Oh, I, I for sure, I'm such a nerd for like awesome scene work, and like they're really it's happening here just constantly. Sorry, I just wrote down the line when Agadora says, "Good evening, may I take your purse as." Usual <laughs> or for the, for the very first, first time. time. <laughs> yeah. it's so good. It's the whole so concept, funny. the whole concept of, of a person not being able to walk in <laughs> shoes yeah, because they make it fall so down. Funny, like, and I forgot about just thinking of, of that as a thing. Like the, the idea that you putting shoes on would make you not be able to walk is like the funniest concept to me, just on its own. I just so funny, so funny. It um, makes me so happy. It does, it's but so it also funny. makes me sad. You know, it yeah. does make me sad. This was actually, we were talking about this. This is the first time I haven't cried in preparation. But Natalie for, uh, and I both did yeah, still right. cry. Yeah, of course, the late, great Robin Williams, yeah. who is just exudes warmth and beauty in this role. And he adds he such a layer of sadness to a lot sure. of his comedy roles, including this one. Yes. There, there are moments where I'm just like, Lost in his eyes, and yeah. he has such a sadness. There's to something him. going on. It's so it's so gorgeous. But uh, yeah, the also I wanted to throw out Ennio Morricone did the score, uh, which is pretty cool. And for the um, original film, for the original film, and the film was distributed by United Artists. And though it was a long shot, the film ended up being insanely popular, not just in France but in other parts of the world, most especially the U.S. As the film got a full English dub. Uh, and this was from an article on Criterion.com by David Ehrenstein, who said, 
The comic confusion that ensues in this third pivotal scene involving ludicrously straight redecorating comically credulous in-laws, potentially delicious political scandal, and drag queens galore is priceless. Yet underneath all the raucous laughter stands a very serious truth. The fierce graciousness with which Seralt and Tognazzi, I'm sorry, Seralt and Tognazzi go through their paces (laughs) is not only funny, but deeply touching. For while some spectators may have come to laugh at the likes of Al Ben and Renato, they soon find themselves laughing with and feeling for them. The reason is simple. Albin is Laurent's mother in every way save for his gender. Consequently, the plot's climactic revelation of who he, she really is weds farce logic to strongly felt moral conviction. And that, in a nutshell, is why, after all these years and all these incarnations, La Caja Full is more of the moment than ever. Once an idle pipe dream, gay marriage is on the fast track to becoming a reality worldwide. Who knew a French farce would lead the way? Which is, it's, it's, interesting to watch that at this time it was of the moment and that it, that it kept getting more and more updated and now watching it I read a lot of people since the 25th anniversary just came up a lot of people were like this is so this is so dated yeah it's so dated in in what it has to say but I just in looking at it like but it was not dated at the time yeah I know that that of course obviously, I think it's, it's a valuable time capsule to this period right. yes that i don't look at it and i look at it more of and thinking man i wish we've gone further than yeah. we've had rather right. than saying that's outdated i wish that i'd be like i wish it were way more it's outdated. not that outdated yeah <laughs> yes yeah. like it really it's isn't truth for sure truth yeah truth. i'm brave whatever truth, queen <laughs> um, yes what, what am i supposed to say i'm afraid of women uh, the musical. Let's talk about it. <laughs> Let's talk about the 1983 Broadway production. Nine nominations for Tony Awards, one six, including Best Musical, Best Score, and Best Book. It was done by uh, Harvey Firestein, which makes Aww. a lot of sense. Yeah, yeah. Harvey Firestein, uh, uh, Jerry Herman, who also composed the score for Hello Dolly. And apparently, uh, La Caja Faux was Broadway's first homosexual musical. Wow. Which, I mean, I don't know if that's uh, I true. I don't think that's yeah. true. <laughs> and it ran On the for- outside. And yes. that the director um, apparently wouldn't even allow his lead characters on stage to kiss each other on the cheek because wow. he was worried about offending sure. the Ugh. Broadway critics. And hey, uh, this is 1983, so crazy. right? This is the era of cats, right? All people want is to do cocaine and yep. see animals <laughs> dance on stage. Very, <laughs> very straight cats. <laughs> yeah, the incredibly straight cats. Uh, well, that's what they were called, straight cats. Straight cats, and They yeah. changed the name to cats because they were like, why do we have to make sure that they know their sexual identity? <laughs> uh, the, the musical runs for but for five years, 1,761 performances. I mean, that is a solid-ass run, though, for this being this kind of new thing, this this d- risky thing, I guess, maybe for the time. I'm not sure. And Gene Barry and George Harn played the, the original people in the musical. And Gene Barry said, I've never been in something that's had this kind of acceptance. Heterosexual couples see themselves in George and Albin. So does everybody in the audience. It's an amazing it- transference. What a beautiful gift this play is to us, the actors, and to the audiences. And then George uh, Hearn says, one of my favorite lines in the show is when the son George conceived in a moment of abandon, the son George and Albin then raised from infancy brings home his fiance. And she's asked about us. Did you know about them? 
And her answer is, no, but now that I do, it doesn't matter. I like them. Which is also Calista Flockhart does in yeah. the movie as well, where it's like mm -hmm. the idea of not only acceptance of like, oh, this is something that should be a part of our normal everyday lives, but they even do put it in there of like even the daughter of a very conservative family that it's not about changing the next generation. It's mm -hmm. about opening the eyes to the current older generation. Right. And that's what this musical was really trying to do, especially with Broadway, where, you know, to call it the first homosexual musical is, I think, ins is insane. That's crazy. Also what throw about it Starlight Express? <laughs> also wanna, Straight. I want to throw it out there. Uh, this is kind of just an interesting little detail. The musical is actually based on the play. It's not based on the film. So in the musical, they were unable to include the character of Jean Michael's birth mother. That was created for the film. And yes. obviously, Jean Michael's birth mother, the character that is the American version of Jean Michael, uh, is in the Birdcage, mm -hmm. right? Yes. And played by the fuck she's uh, Christine, Christine Baranski. She's the best. The best. I, love I love their scene together in the office. I know. When they do the song and dance. It's so beautiful. And uh, yeah, uh, so yeah, just a weird thing. The musical's based on the play, the movie's based on the other movie, and not to be confused, right? <laughs> Very bizarre. But either way, I want to get to Nichols and May, our comedy duo who will end up eventually creating uh, this uh, great film. It was written by Elaine May. It was directed by Mike Nichols. I Maybe I thought about you, Holden, because oh they were God. like besties. Nichols and May. Nichols and May. I love it. Hey. Hey, Nichols and May. All right, whatever. What am I? Gay horse. I'm the bird. You're the gay horse. <laughs> You're the I'm gay, gay horse. horse. Okay, that's fine. As long as I can be there. Hi, Max. I wanted to share something with you. I wanted to tell you how grateful I am and how you've embraced your sobriety since day one. I'm grateful for how you changed your life. I'm grateful for the love you have for me. I'm grateful for you. Love, Mom. If your loved one is still struggling with addiction, you might not feel like you'll ever get to grateful. But we can show you how. At Karen, we've helped families overcome addiction for 70 years. So if your loved one is ready for something different, visit caron.org slash lost. The legends are true. We're overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of McDonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10 piece Wick Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba da ba ba ba. Go! I participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Yeah, I would I would say I got to say I need I think we might need to do a whole episode on Mike Nichols because I went down a bit of a He's worm time. Incredible. Wow. And that so much of the work that he has done as a director because there was this, after he passed there's this amazing interview with this panel of all these celebrities that he's worked with through the years that like talking about how a lot of his work came from his survivor's guilt because he mm. was Jewish in, I believe, Germany uh, um, yeah, during escaped. World War II and they escaped and like his dad had gotten already over because I believe he was a doctor and the kids were hidden and shipped to America separate <sighs> from their family. And then a lot of like things like any, you wouldn't do anything that had to do with the Holocaust. There was a lot, he had lots of issues in his life of dealing with how he felt about that obviously and um it's just so crazy to think that like the how his uh debilitating really depression 
came in and out of his life. And that's why The Birdcage is very important because this was one of his first movies back after a huge depression. But we don't yeah, need to get into and, that just and yet. And also the whole thing of Nichols and May and this comedy duo that I, I'd always heard that before, right? I feel like I'd heard the yes. phrase Nichols and May. Nichols yes. and May and Gay Horse. And, and Gay Horse. <laughs> antiquated. Antiquated, yeah. And that whole thing. And they were like, yeah, they did that whole thing. And then the horse was like, we can't get a horse on the stage. We got to stop using this horse. And they said, I will horse. not perform if the horse is not on the stage. <laughs> <laughs> Thank uh, you. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> uh, so yeah, that they were this game-changing comedy duo that was largely improvisational, that was uh, largely eye-opening in terms of just a, uh, a lot of times they dip into scenes where they were like in a relationship, even though they were very briefly, I believe, in one, but not really. They were Their relationship was almost completely they weren't. professional. It was completely, it was professional. completely professional. And right? it's crazy because I've got a bunch of quotes of like how the way they talked about each other, they were work wife and work husband. Yeah, and they totally. were straight up like, they loved each other unconditionally and they trusted each other when it came to anything creative and that this was the first project the birdcage that they worked on from beginning to end completely together and uh it i even nathan lane went on to say he's like it was wonderful to see mike and elaine together during the making of the birdcage not only because it was their reunion but they had this wonderful relationship and he was so tickled by her sense of humor it was a kind of brother and sister relationship and he was very protective of her she's so fiercely intelligent she hardly needs protection but she'd be eating at a cage table and he would sometimes go over and just brush away a few crumbs it was very sweet how he protected her and was very protective of her script which is why which we'll talk about later he wanted the script to be done the way the script was written yes. because of his respect no, he has, like for his writing partner genius yes team uh yeah so elaine may uh was the daughter of theater director and actor parents she would perform with her father in his traveling yiddish theater company so she learned about the road very early she had been in 50 different schools by the age of 10. Damn. After her father's death at the age of 11, she and her mother moved to LA and she soon dropped out of school and was married at the age of 16, of course, because she's in LA and we all know what happens to you in LA at that time period. Uh, Gobbled up. And she was pursuing acting. She to wound who? Up, who I is have, she married I to? Don't, for some reason, I didn't get that. Usually, I do find out the Ugh. weird grief that she was married to. I'm sure he was like 30. Gross. She wound up moving to Chicago to take classes at the University of Chicago, auditing them without actually enrolling. And that's where she met Mike Nichols, who remembers her showing up at his philosophy class and making wild comments, then leaving. And later, a director introduced May to him, saying, Mike, I want you to meet the only other person on campus of the University of Chicago, of Chicago who's as hostile as you are, Elaine May. <laughs> Apparently she would just like, even though she wasn't even paying for school there, she would like audit classes and get into fights with professors and like really was just incredibly uh, upfront and outspoken about who she was and how she felt. Mike Nichols, you already uh, talked about some of this. Mike Nichols was born in Germany under the name Mikhail Igor Pestovsky. And had to flee. Ooh, you're with so his international. Brother. I know. I just really. They all. And it's weird how every other country gets very unrelaxed and very, and and then uh, very intensely says their name. I don't yeah. really know why, but uh, he he had to flee with his brother alone to the U.S. at the ages of seven and three Ugh. to meet up with their father after the Nazis started arresting Jews in Berlin. Oh his God. mother followed suit shortly after. His father also died at an early age and he ended up in the University of Chicago in the pre-med program. His father was actually a doctor. Uh, so he ends up finding the theater in Chicago and briefly studied method acting in NYC under Lee Strasberg. I, by the way, how many times have we 
brought up Lee Strasberg dude. in these motherfucking yeah, episodes. Right. Dude. So if you're, obviously, if you're an actor, you're going to find out about Lee Strasberg. But, like, maybe check him out if you're interested in acting. Yeah. Uh, before returning to Chicago... Uh, to join the Compass Players in 1955, he studied with Lee Strasberg. The Compass Players were an improv group that was the predecessor to Second City, where Elaine May was already performing, and the two began performing together. This turned into the comedy duo Nichols and May, which they took back to New York City. Essentially, they got too big for the improv troupe's britches. They were like, we should probably leave this troupe and mm-hmm. be our own things. We're so successful and b- kind of blowing this group out of the water with uh, what they were doing. So they uh, end up going together. Together, uh, doing the Nickel, the Nichols and May comedy duo act uh, in New York City in 1958, and in 1960 they hit Broadway with their show "An Evening with Mike Nichols and Elaine May," which was a mostly sold-out run. They broke the traditional form of, of being of one. Uh, yeah, I loved reading this because, like, how many thinking back on like black and white comedy, and, like one was always the idiot, and the other one that was always like the smart one, yes. right? And they just broke that form of like always having that as the comedy duo dynamic, and really broke into scenes that had each playing all these different types of characters. Elaine May went against the traditional female comedy types as well of the, at that time, playing a lot of sophisticated, intelligent female working professionals in her scenes and a lot of what they did as comedy they they spoke a lot very truthfully and honestly in comedic terms um and tr- when they do like bits in relationships and stuff like that they were essentially just opening the doors on what kind of material and what kind of comedy you could do from what i've gleaned like outside of the old school like housewife and right. you know working man and all this kind of stuff and got like a lot more honest about relationship dynamics and got a lot more just honest about and, and a lot more progressive, I think, in, in a feminist way and things like that. Yeah. From what I've gleaned, I haven't really heard a lot of their acts and stuff, but even... But um, even it goes down to the kind of things that Mike Nichols worked on as well after all of this, because uh, he, had, he had four wives and his last wife was Diane Sawyer. But Angelica yeah, Houston... Yeah, Isn't that crazy? Yes. That picture of the two of them at the Birdcage premiere. Yes. Like, whoa, I didn't know he was married <laughs> to Diane Sawyer. But no. he was... He respected... Bex women. Angelica Houston, who worked with him multiple times, said he was not the least bit misogynistic, which, given how most of those guys are, is very unusual. Yeah, it's sad that that's like, he, oh, there's yes. that one guy. <laughs> he really loved women and listened to them. He loved the presence of women, and that was another thing that kind of made him unusual, particularly in that era where the guys just seemed to love to hang with each other all the time. Mike liked to hang with the girls, and I think for all of the right reasons. So he was working with Elaine, and also it's like right before this, he did like Working Girl and all these like movies of writing, you know, The Graduate, of writing characters for women that weren't really being shown at the time. And even down to I now can see the difference between Diane Weiss' character and the character in the original La Caja Faux, where she he definitely made her a person rather than just a set piece yeah. of of a person you know what i mean yeah. and i and you can feel that in his work and i know that working and respecting elaine may so much brought that to so much and in fact even carly simon said that he would talk with this uh, he when he asked about the greatest influences and loves of his life even in front of diane sawyer he would say <laughs> elaine and diane were the two women in his life who had made the biggest impression i always wondered if it bothered diane and apparently it didn't she just really liked that he 
was such good friends with women. I mean, I think Diane Sawyer can hold her own. She's yeah, yeah, yeah. Not, no, like, Diane super insecure about nah, it. I will say Lexi fucking hates it. Oh, so, should we, are yeah. we breaking up right now? Yeah. Oh, wow. We're this is a right weird now. time to do it. Me and the gay horse are getting hates it. Yeah, we're going to start <laughs> with the gay horse. No, you can't out. have her. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to have to cut you in half, guys have to, You guys, show me your packages. We got to do the king whatever and cut you in half. I want the front. I'll take the back. Oh, no. No, I don't want you to have the back. <laughs> what if he has the midsection? I'll, I'll take the, the front and the you back. Take the feet and the head. Uh, that's even worse. Actually. That's even more disturbing. <laughs> What's in the box? It's head. <laughs> um, anyways, uh, I have completely lost this. Oh, sorry, man. Sorry. Steve Martin credits them as the first, uh, Nichols and May, that is, as the first to satirize relationships. And a big part of their routine involved arguing contemporary banalities and poking fun at how how self-serious they found the youth to be at the time, which I think is a lot of fun. Because, right, because they're probably in the getting into the hippie movement and the the protesting and, and it's like, stuff. like, let's have fun. Yeah, yeah. And they're just like, what if we just smoke a cigar? <laughs> at the height of their fame in 1961, they decide to disband their act and go in different directions with their respective of careers. The Birdcage is them reuniting, which I think is so special and so interesting. Elaine May ends up going more into playwriting and then screenplay writing, as well as some directing, with Nichols focusing more on the directing route in both theater and film. And they both have their ups and downs all through the 70s and 80s in different ways. They both kind of hit their rock bottoms in their careers. Right and hit before the highs. Yeah. Yeah. And that is a big uh, that was a big problem with the birdcage is that Mike Nichols needed this to be a hit. Yeah. He really needed it for him, not not financially, but for his soul. Like, yeah, I, I don't think we mentioned this yet. He made a name for himself after they split by directing The Graduate. Yeah, no, he's very good. The Graduate <laughs> is good an incredible film if you've never seen it before. I mean, it is. And really Who's Afraid else. of Virginia Woolf? And Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? My Wolf. God. It, it, it's so. He, he it, Both of them have these amazing uh, credits. To yeah, their she name wrote Heaven Can up. Wait and Ishtar, which, yeah. like, that's. like yeah. And and May directed The Heartbreak Kid. That was a huge success. Um, it's just crazy. Yeah. Uh, actually, Ishtar was a flop, though. Yes. It and was. she had to hide away from Hollywood uh, for Ishtar. Um, but also, oh God! And also, after the graduate, um, he 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 le he leaves filmmaking for eight years in the late seventies because he does have a couple of flops, as does May. He returns to Broadway and had some big hits, including producing the musical Annie. Yeah, like talk about an egot Jesus. type of a character, right? Well, like, honestly, I mean, everybody that worked on this movie. What's crazy? Same with Elaine May, who was in and out of working on Broadway. Yeah, and yeah, a lot. Of, everybody's like a Broadway. The costume baby. designer won Tonys. The makeup designers won multiple Oscars and Tonys. Like. What they did is they put together this movie with people that were like-minded that have been working both in theater and on film to bring the sensibility of Broadway to this fun movie. Yeah, yeah. to be able to transform it in yeah. the, uh, the appropriate way. Yeah, I, so cool. rarely do you see it, and it's so cool when yeah. you see a, a well-adapted from from the, the stage. Also, I love watching Elaine May do stuff because as someone that I obsess with Lily Tomlin, Elaine May was a huge inspiration to Lily Tomlin. So anyone mm. that can inspire Lily Tomlin. Yeah, yeah. for sure. <laughs> um, yeah, Elaine May said, we spent some years, speaking of her and Nichols' relationship, we spent some years not even being friends. And then we became friends again, and then we became very good friends. Yeah. And I just love that with this reunion for them. And you, you get that feeling. I feel like, 
probably a lot of their relationship is there's is stuff in the relationship between uh Robin Williams's character and Nathan Lane's character very much right? so because I mean, I'm sure right? yes it is that it is the the relationship that has grown to a point where you're just they are you know um Robin Williams and uh, Nathan Lane's characters are best friends at this point. Like that's why we really see in that palimony scene, which is something that I realize now that I'm older of what that scene means. Because when you're younger, like I just, you know, I still think of the, you know, how Egyptian when he's like, I'm bringing my toothbrush and she's leaving. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it, it just makes me, yes. like I never really understood that scene, but now I do. As an adult looking at it, of him being like, I share my life with you. Yeah. I know we can't legally be married, but also interesting choice that they didn't hammer that in the head either. Mm-hmm. I think they were trying to um, be accessible to anyone that would want to watch this movie because it wasn't like, well, we can't get married. So that is a big problem. But obviously a problem for Albert was the fact that they weren't married, that they weren't yeah. legally together and technically nothing held Robin Williams there with him. Yeah. And then also here, we don't want you around yeah. on top of it. Yeah. I mean, that's, it's part of the whole plot of the movie, but it is the thing that stands out to me the most watching it now is how poorly Nathan Lane's character is treated by yes. everybody. And it's, it's played as comedy, which of course we're supposed to see as bad, but we would never treat, well, we wouldn't want to treat a gay character like this in a modern right. story. O- where othering and no, yeah. pushing away and, 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 and the joke of him being like hurt by Robin Williams, you know, in the office with his his ex-lover and just being like, you know, it was hilarious. He was so upset and getting up yeah. and leaving and stuff. And, and you know, he was being treated like shit, <laughs> yes. you know? Yeah, yeah. And I felt really bad for him. Which totally. is why the casting of this movie was so important. So Mike Nichols said, one of the main things we wanted to do in casting the movie was to find actors who would inhabit the characters rather than comment on them. The most important thing was that they be truthful. And now I can't imagine anyone else as any of these characters. They are exactly the right actors for each role, right down to the non-speaking parts. So, and like you said earlier, how Steve Martin was originally cast, and it's gotta be so difficult in his brain to be like, but this is the cast that I want. Steve Martin was already had an obligation to do another movie. Well, I could also go and say, I mean, you even said, I don't know if we were recording when you said this, but Nathan Lane was out to his family, but not necessarily out to the world even. So he wasn't even necessarily casting a gay man in the I mean, very few people were out. And probably in his mind, he's like, I need to cast, I need to cast straight. It's like the opposite conversation we're having now where it's like, I need to cast straight characters in this to make this a more, quote unquote, acceptable to the audience I'm trying to get this to. It's because he's trying to get this into the hands of not the necessarily even the the gay community, but the people who are assholes to the gay community. To understand right. a little bit more yeah. of that, you know, like oh my god, homosexuals—they're just like us. Yeah. Where because then that's why I think that they did it funnier and they dress better. Oh yeah, no, they're they're <laughs> definitely better than like us. Cis. But that's they're, what you said yeah. as an eight-year-old. That's what you said in the theater. You said. <laughs> Oh, mm-hmm. mommy, homosexuals, <laughs> just like us. Mother. Your big lollipop. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I remember Always that. Always sucking on lollipops. <laughs> <Your> sailor hat. <laughs> yeah, let's talk about this cast, dude. I know. I'm not, I, Actually, I don't think I'm going to cry this time talking about old wow. Robin Williams. I like God. the Heath Ledger episode with 10 things I hate about you. And fuck, I'm done. 
I'm sick of crying about everybody was hitting me up on Insta, by the way. Uh, I'm so sorry to all you sympathy criers out there for the Ren episode because I, I think I cried at least three or four times. Um, but uh, Robin Williams, I will just say, grew up in and around Chicago. I mean, we're going to, it's someone we're probably going to do an episode of Robin Williams. We have right? to. So just don't worry. Oh, that man, we're that's going to be hard. Yeah, yeah right. That will be very hard. That episode, that part two, because you know it'll be a two part. Oh, yeah. I can't even think about it right now. Uh, but uh, yeah, so we'll just say about Ro- old Robin Williams. Grew up in around Chicago. Early on, he used humor as a way to get his mother's attention. He was one of those shy kids that found the theater and overcame that there. I've read it a million times. that, And I was even one of those kids that found theater class as my way to express myself when I was so shut down in middle school and just terrified to speak pretty much any other time of the day but for that 45 minutes in theater class. Uh, kind of saved my life a little bit. But uh, yeah, he... he um, uh, went to Juilliard on a full scholarship in 1973 alongside Christopher Reeve. And after that, he got into stand-up comedy in San Francisco and then Los Angeles, eventually becoming famous on the TV show Mork and Mindy, as well as his comedy specials airing on HBO. And it really was this sitcom, him playing this silly alien character that like broke him into uh, being a household name. Uh, he ends up breaking the film in the early 80s uh, as the titular character in a movie I really want to rewatch, Popeye. And hit it yeah. big because that and does the story, it. And the story up. of the making of Popeye holds the fuck. Yes, up. like if, if nothing else. Oh the, yeah. The oh yeah. Chaos that was yeah. that, that. I would love film. to do that. We episode. could maybe do that. Episode. That'd be a super bizarre, fun, yeah. weird, probably fun ass one, man. The stories from that. So apparently, it was just fucking cocaine. Oh sure, of course. Oh yeah. What are you gonna make Popeye without cocaine? Yeah. <laughs> And he hit it big with Good Morning Vietnam in 1987. Then moving on to serious roles like, oh, Dead Poets Society. I love it. And Mike Nichols said about casting Robin Williams, he says, it goes without saying that Robin is a wonderful actor and the story required someone with Robin's unlimited resources at the center of it. What I wanted in Armand was a kind of suppressed hysteria, someone who could appear perfectly straight and ordinary, but with a little something just under the surface that he can't completely control. Robin played that brilliantly. He's funny all the way through, but funny in a controlled way. Which can be seen in this because I think at the time, again, just coming off of Mrs. Doubtfire, people weren't looking at him as being able to play the straight character or being reserved. Uh, yes. He does do that somber But of course, there's, well. you know, dead poets, society, stuff like that, yeah. but in, like, in a comedic way right. of being reserved, yeah. which he's also fucking brilliant he at. Really is. so good in this role. Robin Williams said, we tried to get across a couple who were just as loving as any heterosexual couple. It's a love story. Uh, and I do love that scene with them you know, on the bench is so beautiful. And they're both just such amazing actors. And that's what I really Kill can't it. get past. Not only is it such a hilarious movie, but they're all brilliant actors mm-hmm. that, that are just, man, like effortlessly acting their fucking asses off. And again, thinking of Gene Hackman as the least funny part of this movie for so much of my life, cut to two years ago <laughs> where I'm like, fuck. I think he might be my favorite character yeah. or one of my favorite yeah. characters. Yeah. That between that and realizing finally how jacked Robin Williams and Hank Azaria are, yeah. which I never <laughs> really noticed, but Robin Williams, 
My God, he's pure muscle. By the way, you were talking about the abuse on Nathan Lade's character, but man, I feel like Hank Azaria's character gets more Yes, obviously. There's some. I guess we'll get into how it's uh, potentially. Maybe that's one the one aspect of the film that might not hold up a little bit of. But a it's interesting spot, though. But, but we'll talk about. But the still, the way he gets shit on in this movie, I was feeling yeah. worse than Nathan Lade's character. They're so mean to him, and he's so charming, and he's so funny, and you just want to love him so much, and everybody's such a jerk to him, and it's. I mean, it's the comedy of it, I guess, but you yeah. can't help but feel from um, uh, Nathan Lane of his relationship uh, with Nathan Lane. Robin Williams said it was laugh at first sight. We started riffing the moment we met. And uh, I love this. And also, and as you said before, that Steve Martin had dropped out and Mike Nichols then wanted if Robin Williams is going to be Armand, he wanted Nathan Lane to play Albert. So he originally approached Nathan Lane when he was performing on Broadway in Neil Simon's Laughter on the 23rd Floor. Hell yeah. So he comes backstage and Nathan Lane says, to have Mike Nichols come backstage and say, I'd like you to star in a movie was a dream come true. But at this time, he was committed to starring in a revival of A Funny Thing Happens on the Way to the Forum. So he actually declined oh, immediately, wow. even though he really did well, want to go do it. Well, that was a successful It was very successful, though. which is why. And so Nichols kept calling Nathan Lane. So finally, Nathan Lane was like, all right, you know what? If you, he's like, I'm doing this revival you want me to do it? Call Scott Rudin, who was directing the revival, and talk to him about it. And he did. And Mike Nichols got the revival pushed back so Lane could be, so Nathan Lane could be Albert, and he could also do a funny thing happened on the way to the forum. Nathan Lane, by the way, uh, seemed to have a bit of a tragic upbringing with yeah. a bipolar mother, a father who died of alcoholism when Very Nathan difficult. was just 11 years old. He ended up ditching college quickly and heading to New York City instead, where he struggled for years in theater and stand-up, eventually making his Broadway debut in 1982 in Noel Coward's pres Present Laughter, uh, which led to a more to more Broadway work through the following decade before breaking into film with, actually, The Birdcage. While performing in the theater in uh, New York City, he gained a close working relationship with American composer and lyricist Stephen Sondheim. And I believe that song you sang We will beginning. talk about the... In fact, Sondheim wrote all of the music yeah. for the movie and including wrote an opening Birdcage theme, but Mike Nichols wanted to go with the Sister Sledge it's version so of Your Family. It's so good, though. Yes, to like, give that it... like opening a, is so strong yeah it's great and it's all perfect. of the music that like they sing in the rehearsal the music that starina sings it's all written by sondheim for this movie because he was just a fan and he was excited for the Aww. movie to be being made lane based his drag look on barbara bush he said they gave me these big pearls to wear and it just became the image that everyone used i found the barbara bush inside me my inner bush <laughs> <laughs> lane said what i remember in seeing it as a young man was not only how funny it was but also also how subversive it was in its way. It's subversive in the fact that the gay people are the heroes and the straight people are the villains. Yes. And someone actually wrote into the page seven email with a, cons uh, I may use it as a conspiracy theory, but it was more just a fascinating thought about villains in cinema, especially in like Disney films. And they all have these very uh, gay attributes. They're never like on their face gay, but if you look back at certain villains, like let's say Scar, some things like that, and you're like, oh wow, they really kind of like, Fimmed it up in these ways and did these sorts of things. Interesting. That, that you look back and you're like, that huh. is actually kind of a depiction of even like Ursula. You can look. Oh, at absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Yes. And, and and also very like with uh, with villainy. Yeah, yes. and yeah. Like not uh, not mat like there's no maternal 
like warmth in them because that's right. evil and like that kind of shit. Yeah, yeah for sure. Very, very. I started thinking. I was like, I had one of those moments when they wrote in. I was reading their very well written message, and I just went like, just all these mental images of all the Disney villains that I've seen and yeah. cinema and stuff like that. And oh being like, yeah. Oh, they're all like very queer, oh, weird. kind of vibey, you know. And Ridiculous. so yeah. And then realizing like, yeah. That really wasn't in a lot of movies at this time. A, yeah. a good guy, gay character, uh, you know, much less like talking about caricatures of gay people, but even right. just a gay person that's not a villain. Right, you know, right. As well as a caricature. So, And also, again, and not trying to just do stereotypes as Nathan Lane said about his portrayal. He said, it's not about extremes. I just tried to be more feminine and softer. When Albert is in drag, it's a performance. And though he's melodramatic at times, as many performers are, at home he loves being a family man. And that that is completely shown. Like I feel like I, it's funny that you brought up that Henry's version of my mother is a little bit like a Nathan Lane. I, I keep thinking about that. That because, is so funny. Honestly, it was a little bit of hysterics in our household in a very similar way, <laughs> but in a like in a fun way, you know. I, <gasps> <laughs> and I do the same thing now. I drop something and go, oh my. And just like, you have to scream about everything. And I yeah. find myself being uh, Albert. The fucking scene with the spreading of the mustard. You pierced the toast. So what? <laughs> I, I could always get more toast. toast. Put the pinky down. <laughs> so funny. So you pierced the toast. <laughs> Oh my God! When, when he does the the John Wayne yeah, walk, that's never really that's that was an improvised line, right? Yes, I there's. So. Oh, I just oh, never realized so John good. Wayne walk. Oh, like really? That, that was yeah, improvised. I believe so. So is the so Egyptian good. line is an is oh, an improvised yes. line. Uh, so uh, to get through the rest of the cast, Gene Hackman wanted to become an actor at the age of ten and later lied about his age at sixteen in order to enlist in the U.S. Marine Corps. Whoa! Uh, after the army, he studied journalism and TV production at the University of Illinois, then moved to California to pursue acting in various TV and film productions and made a name for himself in films like Bonnie and Clyde, The French Connection, leading to steady work through the 70s and 80s. But The Birdcage was actually his first real comedic role, and that is re really late in his career, I feel like. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! I participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. And what's awesome is that um, the reason how Mike Nichols knew that he was very funny is because he used to do improv with him. He oh. said, I've known Gene Hackman for a long time and knew that he started out as I did in improvisational comedy. I know how funny he can be. His genius is that he can be 100% true and funny at the same time. Gene never fakes anything. And just, oh my God, that ends with the... I don't understand. <laughs> I don't understand. <laughs> Even just the way he so did good. it. So and really, again, and the whole watch that monologue. Just if you don't have the time to watch the whole movie, watching him yeah. do that monologue is so. And watching Diane Weiss just like list, <laughs> trying to listen to him, it makes me think about when we talk about the Ralphs coupons. Yeah, and I'm yeah, like, yeah, it's yeah. great, the Ralphs coupons. And the, way is, the way he is about the controversy is so funny to me. Just the way he, just the way he, it, it's so true now. And I feel like back then it didn't even hit as hard as it does now that we're so much more used to like 
politicians being caught up in controversy and not, a actually, minor? And not a actually prostitute? caring about the people involved, just caring about how it's going to affect their career. That is like so, it's just so holds up. Uh, His last lines, sadly. your money's on the, se- the end yeah, table, yeah, yeah. chocolate. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, so, so just ridiculous. so ridiculous. It's so, the coalition of moral order yeah. that he works for. <laughs> so funny. Diane Weist, uh, Weist uh, studied theater at the University of Maryland, but left early to tour with the Shakespeare troupe and made her Broadway debut in 1971, again coming out of the theater, and continued to get steady theater work all through the 70s and 80s, while also breaking into film with stuff like her role as the reference wife in the film Footloose. Uh, she also won an Academy Award for her role in what I get maybe is still one of my favorite films, even though now it's very different, but Hannah and Her Sisters. Oh, uh. in 1987. She's so good in that movie. Uh. Uh, Dan Futterman, who plays the son, actually broke into film as a thug who menaces Robin Williams in the film The Fisher King in 1991. Fun fact, that fucking guy, the kid, the, the son of the family, Val. he wrote the film Capote, which Whoa. is one of my favorite movies. I huh? didn't know that. Yeah. I was like blown away. I'm like, that guy wrote Capote? He, uh, yeah, and his like very good friend directed it, and uh, that movie is like amazing. I also didn't realize he was in The Fisher King, which is another movie, another Robin Williams movie that mm-hmm. if you guys ever want to do, I love The Fisher King. Absolutely. Uh, I... And then I there's a time. This is this is the time to watch. I need it's great. that. Actually, I would love to watch that movie. I've always meant to. Callista Flockhart was just about to hit it big as the star of the show. Allie McBeal, you know the Dancing Baby show. Dancing Baby, but had uh, up until this point been struggling to get work in Manhattan, uh, acting in various TV and film roles uh, before getting the Birdcage. Though her first substantial role was in the film Quiz Show in 1994. Her character, which is also where Mike Nichols first saw Hank saw. Azaria. Yeah, yeah. What? I think I, I bet he cast both of them because of that movie. Actually, yes. Because, yeah, he, he ca- caught Hank Azaria off of Quiz Show as well. Her character in the script, uh, by the way, is described as not even 18, though she was 31. Yeah, I know, great. I saw. She, I mean, she crushed one? it, but I was like, watching it, I was like, Calista Flockhart, She's I know, like, was not a teenager <laughs> yeah, not during this time. Um, Hank Azaria grew up in New York City, and his family were Grecian Jews who were later expelled from Spain and moved to the U.S. Therefore, his family's spoken language at home was Ladino, also known as Judeo-Spanish, which he described as, quote, a strange, antiquated Spanish dialect written in Hebrew characters. That's very yeah, really? difficult. Very yeah. It's very difficult to learn. As a child, he would memorize and mimic films, shows, and stand-up routines, which is why he got so good at doing different dialects, doing different characters. After not doing so high as a theater actor in NYC, he moved to Los Angeles to break into television, which led to several small parts before getting like a billion voice roles on the show The Simpsons starting in 1989 with the character Mo Sislak. He had only <laughs> done one voiceover gig before this, and that got him more TV and film work. He was also, though, as you said, in Quiz Show. Wait, The Simpsons was his first real that voiceover? Kind of I mean, his, but yeah, yeah cartoon. Wow. Insane. That's that nuts. Nice. Yeah, no, talk about like Hank Azaria is a. Huge inspiration to me. I, I, God, what an amazing performer. And him in this, it is, I understand why times have changed and that people find his characterization in the movie offensive. I completely understand. 
but he's just so He's so endearing funny though and so funny it. especially with the physical stuff with the walking in the shoes and the way, yeah. So, with that fall, it's yeah. so funny. I mean, Hank Azaria is a genius. When they're singing, I could dance again. I could have danced How great that night. scene is. Absolutely. He's I don't fantastic. think most people would argue that he's a genius, because he is. And I also will say to anyone who does feel like the, the, his character is problematic in this, he did actually base that dialogue. He kind of realized after the fact, but he realized he was actually doing the voice of his grandmother, that that is that dialect that he does is Charles, specifically so this, his grandmother. The Judeo-Spanish language. So like that's so interesting. Yeah. But what is more interesting, <laughs> I think, <laughs> is that originally the um, Agadol Spodicus character uh, was played by a black man in both of the, um, the stage production and the original movie. And originally, David Allen Greer was cast as yes. the character. Wow. And as they were doing, so Hank Azaria was the dresser of Starina. So he was still in that role. But so we, essentially, Agador Spartacus was like two different characters. And as they were doing it, um, Hank Azaria said, and though they thought David Allen Greer was brilliant, they thought that in an American context, the idea of a black houseman would be somewhat distasteful and have very racist overtones, houseman. Azaria said. Houseman. So since it's set in Miami, they decided to make it a Latin character. And I was already playing the other character, so I think it was Robin Williams' idea. Why not just combine the two roles and just let Azaria do it? And that's essentially what happened, and that does suck for David Allen Greer. But I do understand, I mean, that... That was rough, and now, 25 years later, we also recognize, that, which is good, that playing a Latin character when you are not of Latin descent is also upsetting and offensive, and treating anyone like that is not good. I mean, he is referred to as a savage at one point, but that is also part well, of the joke of that they are such conservative, ridiculous people that, yeah. again, like you said, even with the, like, Having you know dying in the bed of of an underage sex worker, what all he could think about was himself, yeah. not about anything else. So I also think that is the perspective that of the so character. Underage and black. <laughs> Jesus so Christ! So funny. But I mean, but they might have even softened Gene Hackman's character in the film if they made it today, and I think that would have done a disservice. I think that how brutal he is and how it's so funny. I mean, I don't land. know. The, that, the people who are that guy in our generation guy, yeah. have ramped up right. because they're almost the fighting rhetoric. against the liberalism that's and coming together, up. They're yes. like monster and people. And Nathan Lane's uh, portrayal and, and all that scene work they do when she's trying to connect with him as uh, conservative oh is God. so, the, I say kill the mother. I say kill the mother. <laughs> He's already going to kill the fetus. Might as well go down with the ship. <laughs> I almost feel I like yeah, like so. I feel like these conservatives are more welcoming than some would well, be now. To all of them. So I do think that it shows the growth by the end when he said, "I don't want to be the only girl not dancing." <laughs> when Gene Hackman is is all dressed up, which makes it so yeah, funny. So yeah, funny. Uh, and last to round out the cast real quick, Christine Baranski, of course. She also went to Juilliard, made her off-Broadway debut in 1980, and her Broadway debut later that same year, and got a Tony in 1984 for her role in Tom 
Stoppard's The Real Thing. She continued to be a hit on Broadway and transferred that to TV with her role as the hard-drinking friend Mary Ann in the sitcom oh, Sybil. So That's, good. I think, where we all oh, most Sybil, of us yeah. first met her. And her first film role was actually The Birdcage. She's so she, damn Yes, good. and she'd worked with Mike Nichols on Broadway as well. And she immediately knew. She said, in a film peopled with eccentric and wildly funny people, Catherine is quite centered and calm. She says, I think it's true of Elaine's script that you come away with a sense that there's love and dignity to all these characters, however eccentric they are. Love levels things. Unconditional love can normalize any situation. So getting into the improvisation, I'll just say Mike Nichols, who liked to get raw moments on the camera, such as that final shot in The Graduate, so good on the bus, also understood his cast would run away from a scene with too much improv. Uh, He was definitely working with, you know, some loose cannons (laughs) improvisationally. So he tried to keep improv to rehearsals and get those moments into the actual shooting script as much as humanly possible. Nichols said, the actors would do the written script until I was satisfied and then we would do one take in which they could improvise. Given this cast, there were obviously some improvs that were insanely funny but didn't fit the story. But there were but there are moments all through the picture that are improvised and were perfect. And definitely right, had a yes. like we have to at least get one good take on the book. Yes. And then you guys can go a little wild. So I think it was a little bit of improv before, improv after. Um, and that's yeah. what I like Robin Williams said about it. He says, it does two things. It frees you up and it adds a certain wild energy to the mix. Then even the scripted lines are gassed up because it's no holds barred. The rules are off. Sometimes it's great. Sometimes it misses. But it spices it up and adds fire to the situation, which I like that like even in watching, you know, like apparently Nathan Lane, when the Schnecken beckons, that line was improvised. <laughs> How Egyptian line was uh, improvised uh, when he falls in the kitchen when Robin Williams is trying to get the shrimp for the sweet and sour peasant soup. Um, his fall was not scripted either, but they and this was the first time in watching this that I started watching the other people in every scene to see how often they were desperately trying <laughs> to not laugh. And it was a lot. Yeah. You could see of like, even Diane Weiss would just like look off with stoicism of desperately trying to not laugh. And that even Mike Nichols had a huge problem being on set. There, there were times, um, he said, Mike would have to leave the set with his monitor and a handkerchief in his mouth so he wouldn't ruin the take with his laughter, Diane Weiss tells. We were all guilty of breaking up during takes. There were nights we would laugh from the time we arrived in the morning until we wrapped at night. I love it. How, what an amazing experience. Yeah, Robin Williams's fall in the kitchen was not planned. Yes. By the way, you can see Hank Azaria holding back a laugh when it happens. Uh, it's a I love all it. Throughout. The opening shot was actually three shots stitched together, beginning with a helicopter cam, then a crane attached to a steady cam operator who was gradually lowered to the ground, then walked across the street, and the last shot was filmed on a studio soundstage. And Very also, cool. the, what they hmm. say about that, that um, why was that all-in-one, that, uh, that tracking shot so amazing? It was because the movie cinematographer was Emmanuel Chivo Lubezki, mm. the three-peat Oscar winner behind Gravity, Birdman, and The Revenant. Wow. Uh, he oh, got, Birdman dude, Wow, he got, I mean, all those are incredibly yeah. well shot. Between so, Bo Welsh, the production designer, he had worked on the Tim Burton films Beetlejuice, Edward Scissorhands, and Batman Returns. Oh, okay, all oh, of yeah. these. Like, so, there's so many people that yeah. have worked together that have worked in these insane movies. So, 
the original movie was set in the French Riviera. They moved it to Miami. And Bo Welsh says, South Beach is perfect for this movie because it's the closest equivalent in the United States to the French Riviera. (laughs) It has perhaps the largest collection of 1930s Art Deco buildings in the world. The walk in front of where our Birdcage nightclub was located is a nonstop parade of scantily clad, beautiful people sprinkled with tourists from all over. So it's a great smorgasbord of characters. And you could imagine that this club could flourish there. Um, they also went on to work with um, Anne Roth, the costume designer who has won multiple Tonys and Oscars for her costume designing, and makeup artist Roy Helland, who is an Academy Award winning artist who has, crazy enough, worked with Meryl Streep on every movie she's made since 1982. He is like, her, and then also works on whatever other movies that she works on. So Mike Nichols brought in the makeup artist as well and talking about how Anne Roth is a genius. She instinctively knows what everybody should wear, even when it's just a t-shirt and shorts. But there's something about the way she and Roy conceive Nathan's character when he's in drag, especially when he's in drag for the family as Mrs. Coleman that made her a whole person with a specific identity. The makeup artist, Helen, says, Mike wanted the makeup in this movie to be real. He wanted a complete illusion so that the audience will suspend their disbelief. It can be funny, but it shouldn't be funny just looking at it, which is a difficult, when you're trying to make a great movie, it's difficult, I imagine, to toe the line. When you don't want, you want these characters to be grounded so they need to be, they need to look grounded. Yeah. And I read this whole review of talking about Bo Welsh's production design of their Armand and Albert's home of like that it was not only was it South Beach but it was well lived in it was still a family home Mm -hmm. even though it was like ridiculous art everywhere as opposed to the starkness Mm -hmm. of what it becomes when they're trying to make it conservative which is also at the same time which I appreciated Bo Welsh was like we were making fun of conservative people of yeah. course more than anything For absolutely sure. and that's what we wanted to get across of like this staunch like with the crucifix on yeah. the wall oh my god that's <laughs> so funny <laughs> he's like oh my god oh my god i'm in hell and there's a crucifix here <laughs> oh my god also give me their balcony with the hot tub oh. with the slide oh, oh my god and that oh i love their decor and uh, also yeah. robin williams fits in this movie oh, oh, yeah. oh you look so Solid. good so good and yeah. hold, fashion holds up i feel like dude Especially so for good his looks and i was talking about this before we started recording that um, Nathan Lane was asked if he was intimidated having to act against comedic force of nature Robin Williams and he said nope I did well because of him because he was a saint he was a kind generous sensitive soul he was a real actor and he wanted the challenge of playing that role and he graciously shared the scene and certainly he was a movie star who could have said I don't want to do it with this guy get me Billy Crystal <laughs> and I, th- multiple times I've read of how Robin Williams didn't just take the scene for himself he gave it up to other people which in comedy is very important and you look at other people that are huge comedic geniuses that don't do that because they want the spotlight for themselves Mm -hmm. and it takes a lot to be able to make the scene with other people and that's what this movie is that as much as like you know you think about like oh Nathan Lane's amazing oh Gene Hackman's amazing oh Robin Lane's amazing this is a cohesive movie Everyone has times to shine. And right. There's that, nobody that's trying to no. just make the, the this is the sh- the Robin Williams show. No. Because yeah. that was Mrs. Yeah. Doubtfire. Right. You know, that is share. like where it was should have like been. such an ensemble piece. And and I think it was so smart of him to not just be like, oh, I just did this kind of dragish 
movie, so I probably shouldn't do this back-to-back, but also to, you know, if he probably was that Nathan Lane character, it would have been harder for him to not chew the scenery. I know. I'm really glad he didn't really end up glad. in that part. Because honestly, Steve Martin probably would have killed it in sure. his role. Sure. Oh, yeah. But I don't, I don't, yeah, I don't like the, I, I think he was... Yeah, I don't like him in the Nathan Lane role. No. You know? I just don't. I, th- feel I like think the two of them together worked. as a couple would have made it a little too much of a caricature. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, totally. Totally. I love my Steve Martin. Give me the jerk any day. <laughs> oh, but. Yes, uh, any the day. film was originally titled Birds of a Feather. Uh, I have a couple little factoids here. Uh, the I loved this. The scene in which uh, Azaria's character tries to calm down uh, Albert before a show was based on Judy Garland's dresser, according to Nichols. Judy would panic before every performance, and her dresser would panic with her, and he would panic more than her, so that she'd have to be the one to tell him to calm down, and that was the ritual they had. I, Which and is so smart. So smart. she was forced to go into this, like, motherly, kind of taking care, nurturing role, and then she lost all sense of, I mean, what a, what a brilliant, brilliant reverse like, psychology move. I think that that's what happens in my relationship. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have any more facts uh, before we get into the release of the film? And our final, I have a good final quote, um, but I want to make sure you get it all on. No, the I just, ha- I know I have more about the like the reviews and the release and the sequel. Oh, great! So let's talk about the release. The film opened on March 8, 1996, in a country in which gay marriage had not yet been legalized, mind you. It was number one in the box office for three weeks and eventually grossed over 180 million dollars worldwide. Lane said, when it came out, the gay press was very hard on it. They felt it promoted gay stereotypes, but it was also a shining light for a community that had just been rocked by the AIDS epidemic, as stated by Dr. Matthew Jones, university professor of cinema audiences and reception, who said, it helped an audience traumatized by a decade of living day-to-day with the threat of disease and death to laugh again. Well, and that's what, and, and also, I feel like Nathan Lane was focusing on the more negative aspects because the gay and lesbian alliance against defamation at the time did come on record and said we've seen so many films with very one-dimensional stereotypical characters their purpose has been to play the straight man to rounds of jokes in the birdcage they go beyond the stereotypes to see the character's depth and humanity so i think that nathan lane was very nervous about yeah. how it was going to especially be especially because he was yeah. it, yes it was him and hank azaria probably that would be the two most biggest targets for that yes. kind of criticism. But right. I just think his humanity shines through anything that could be uh, conceived as a caricature. I yes. just think that he he brings such a heart. For sure. And I think that there are gay, straight, and in between people like that, yeah. myself included, <laughs> yeah, who yeah. are ridiculous. Who are just yes. animated as all hell. Yeah. And I think that they, I, yeah, I, I love how well it hold, the movie holds up. God, I guess is all I have to say. Like, I'm just so thrilled because it's so rewatchable. It's so funny. Um, yeah. And uh, do you want to talk a little about the sequel? I don't really have anything. Oh, yeah, that. sure. Well, also, though, Mike Nichols was because before this, he was having difficulty getting projects because he had had multiple flops. That's why he went into such a yeah. deep depression and kind of like stepped away from working for a while. And he said after he showed the final cut of the birdcage to his editing team in Martha's Vineyard, they all had a celebratory meal. But he said, I was very emotional and very angry. I couldn't speak all through lunch. The film was so good, so strong. I realized I'd had no inkling of my anger at the people who had written me off. Mm. My reaction instantaneously was, fuck you, bastards. You thought I couldn't do this anymore? Well, look at this. I love it. And I do love that it was his like, all right, you know what? No, I'm back. 
And so many people said that, like, even Lorne Michaels, who, you know, notoriously doesn't speak um, highly about almost anyone except for himself. He said, I went to a preview of The Birdcage with Mike Nichols and it destroyed, as we say in comedy, as if no one fucking knows what to be. <laughs> it, it destroyed me, Lorne Michaels. He said he was so happy because there was a time. It happens to all of us. You go in for a meeting at the studio and the implication is, why are you here? We grew up on your stuff. You're already in the Hall of Fame. You're being treated politely, but you're no longer in the game. But after the first preview, he knew, oh, it's going to work. And then suddenly the entire attitude at the studio changed. You can be an icon and treated badly. Steve Martin had this great joke about how after you have a flop, you call your favorite restaurant and they go, absolutely, Mr. Martin. How's 545? Uh, which is... Uh, <laughs> All right, yes, I do want to quickly speak about... The sequel that actually went fairly far be and, uh, because of a British podcast mm. called Beyond the Box Set that claims that it pitches the sequels that nobody asked for. And <laughs> they wondered yeah, how Nathan Lane's flamboyant Albert would cope with the loss of his remarkably patient life partner. Oh. Not to mention oh, the God. tantalizing, terrifying notion of how Agador Spartacus's personal style might have evolved as he entered his mid-50s. <laughs> Birdcage 2, Starina Rides Again, includes... <laughs> pitches for different versions and Nathan Lane heard about it. So apparently the pitch was wow. fleshed out to be when they came up with this, Albert was traveling to Guatemala with Agador. Nathan Lane said, it's a really smart, funny pitch. So what the heck? He sent it to his manager. They sent it to MGM. MGM wow. optioned it. But it was Hank Azaria who stopped it cold. And when Hank Azaria told Nathan Lane, when they got into conversation about it, he said, I loved playing it. I love the idea. But he said, I have one word for you. Apu. And yeah. he was nervous about doing the character again. Yeah. Understand. I mean, but also, good on him can you imagine how they would do it if, like, Robin Williams is yeah. dead, oh. having to do this movie? Like, I don't think I could, even just thinking about it. It makes, makes me sad. sad. It makes me so, so sad. sad. So maybe it's for the best. It's, but, it is, but like, kinda, that would have been a great you know, movie. And I do it at least, is smart. I do at least yeah. like that Hank Azaria is acknowledging issues with all that stuff. In and, fact, Hank, you know, and he came out and he said, I think whenever you have straight or gay characters portraying gays in a humorous way, you're making fun of what you are also treating lovingly at the same time. That definitely lends itself to a crossing of the line. I certainly can understand gay or Latin people having a problem with what I did, but I felt it was authentic in its own way. Yeah. I definitely did my best to make him a three-dimensional person, someone who wasn't just funny, but was also touching and sweet in his own way. I, I agree. Mm -hmm. and that's, I why, that's why that's... I think that for me, you know, and I... Uh, you know, speaking from a place of privilege and this, that, and the other, for me, it's it doesn't it doesn't great. Uh, watch, I just rewatched it. Like it doesn't grate on me. I, I because yeah, I think that we again, of course are I coming love from. The, a... I love the character. Right. Like, I actually love that guy. And I'm proud I mean? of myself because I did none of his quotes, even though I quote them all the time with <laughs> um a bad accent. So um, and I I think that because it was we can look at it from this time and and know that we shouldn't do that now. And I say sure. we as and a human there's population. A great Latin character comic that uh, right. Jay, they should have just gotten uh, the the pest. What? Come on, you know, yes. like Wasamo. <laughs> well, no, he the was too pest. busy doing Tu Wong Fu. <laughs> Thanks for everything, Julie yeah, Newman. That's true. Yeah, yeah. Well, the only like Wasamo you could come up with was the pest. <laughs> and, uh, the next and Luigi. Luigi. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, all right, I have. He's a really amazing. Nice... Get Tu Wong Fu. Thanks for everything, Julie Newman. <laughs> 
I have a great little quote here to close it out. Do you have anything else, uh, Jackie, Natalie? No, no, I'm just sad because Robin Williams is dead. Oh, right. At least I don't have a very sad quote about Robin Williams' death like we did in the 10 Things I Hate About You episode. So we'll, we'll leave that for, we'll leave the cry, the tears for another time. Uh, Nathan Lane had this to say. Homophobia is still alive and well, but there's something about that film that touches people because it's ultimately about family, what you do for your family, why you love your family, even though they drive you crazy. Then ultimately, not to sound corny, it's about love. It's about love in both families and coming to accept one another in their differences. Writer Manuel Betancourt said, the birdcage encourages us all to be more like Albert, to see in his gay femininity a kind of strength that we all too often mock and disparage, sometimes even within ourselves. And I agree. Uh, I I I love that now. About like I love my my any of my feminine qualities, right? And I feel like I ran from them. Yeah. For years, well, it was definitely societally know? pushed yeah. on, especially guys, but girls too in this period. For sure, for yeah. sure. So now I sing my T Swift songs on my piano, and I love it, and I'll keep doing it for the rest of my life. Uh, all right. Thanks so much, everybody, for joining us. Uh, this is our episode on the Birdcage. Uh, if you want to follow us further. Patreon.com forward slash page seven podcast is where you could support us uh, monetarily more so. Uh, weekly episodes, there's actually so much content. It's such a steal for $5 a month. So definitely check it out if you want to. Um, you check me out on twitch.tv forward slash Holdenators Ho. I stream Monday, Tuesday, Fridays, and Fridays I stream with Jackie. And I think that's all I have to say about that. Natalie, take it away. If you want to get real sad, I do a show called Someplace Underneath. (laughs) Me and Amber have fun on it, but it is about missing women. So be forewarned. But it's it's fun. (laughs) It's Uh, fascinating. How about that? Yeah. Someplace Underneath. on And important, actually. Thank you. uh, uh, Informationally. Thank you. And you can get you can listen to that on any streaming podcast platform and uh follow me at the United Gene. There you go. Jackie. And my name is Jackie Zabrowski and whenever I think about the dolphins I also feel betrayed, bewildered. Oh, is that not right? <laughs> uh, I don't know. <laughs> I love that scene so much. He pierces the toast. My name is Jackie. We're just entering. I just love the birdcage. You should go watch the birdcage. Uh, kill the mother. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Have a good one everybody. Bye. Bye. I see kill the mothers. This show is made possible by listeners like you. Thanks to our ad sponsors, you can support our shows by supporting them. For more shows like the one you just listened to, go to lastpodcastnetwork.com. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. Sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last.